The Lord Jesus gave a lot of commands while he was on the earth. And this morning, I, I think that we are going to look at perhaps what is one of the most difficult commands that Jesus gave to his disciples. The command to forgive. So as we think about this from Luke's Gospel, from Luke chapter 17, it's my hope and my prayer that as we think about this command from Jesus to forgive others who have sinned against us, uh, it's my prayer that, that what comes to our mind is just how much we have been forgiven by God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to open your Bibles, turn to your Bibles, or turn into one of the Bibles provided uh, to page 876. 876. Over the, the last two months, that's uh, the page number that's provided in the Pew Bible. Uh, over the last two months, we've been studying through Luke's Gospel. And in these, in these two months in particular, we've been kind of walking with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus deliberately got on this road to Jerusalem. He made a conscious choice to get on this road and to go to Jerusalem right after it was revealed that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the, the promised uh, Messiah of the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus got on this road because it was the mission of the Messiah to secure the salvation of his people by dying in their place. And as Jesus makes his way to the cross, the place where he's going to die, he is teaching those who are gathered around him about how they might come to know the salvation that he is about to secure for them through his death and resurrection. This journey on the road takes up roughly 10 chapters in Luke's gospel, his biography of Jesus. What Luke has done in these 10 chapters is kind of to compile the highlights, some of the highlights of Jesus' public teaching ministry. And as we've been walking, we've been learning. We've been learning about the kingdom of God, learning about the kingdom's power, its presence, its citizens, and so much more. And over the last few chapters, we've seen Jesus directly address his disciples, directly address these large crowds of thousands of people, and a particular group of people as well, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, often known as the Pharisees and the scribes. And after communicating that God graciously welcomes rebellious sinners into his kingdom, Jesus has urged his disciples, what we thought about last week, he's urged his disciples to live in the present for the future. To live today in light of the final day where all of God's people will be gathered together to feast and fellowship with the one true God. In the midst of that teaching, Jesus even warned the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, not to live for the present. And by implication that they too should live for the future. All of this, Jesus realizes, means that we must live in faith. And so, what does Jesus turn to teach us next on this road? He turns to teach us yet again about faith in action. Those living for the future in the present will employ their faith for the glory of Jesus. Faith is what holds Luke chapter 17 verses 1 to 19 together. If you just kind of run your eyes across the text, uh, you'll see that in verses 1 to 4, Jesus, he talks about temptation and sin and the necessity of forgiveness. And this teaching is met by a reply there in verse 5 from the apostles who say, increase our faith. See, the apostles, they saw that what Jesus demanded, what he commanded, required more faith than what they possessed at that point in time. And in verses 5 to 10, Jesus teaches about faith through an aphorism and then through a parable. 
following closely on the heels of this teaching, a miracle and interaction which exemplifies the kind of faith that Jesus has been speaking of, simple faith in Him. In verses 11 to 19, Jesus heals 10 lepers, and only one of them returns to thank Jesus. And that is when Jesus says in verse 19, you'll see there, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. I think that we can learn at least three lessons from Jesus' teaching here on faith. First, true faith forgives. True faith forgives. Second, true faith does its duty. True faith does its duty. And third, true faith gives thanks. True faith gives thanks. These three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And I'll, I'll repeat each point as we're moving into each new section. Let's begin uh, with our, our first point. True faith forgives. Uh, so let's read uh, Luke chapter 17 verses 1 to 5. True faith forgives. Luke chapter 17 verses 1 to 5. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins against, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, I included verse 5 in our reading here because I do think that the Apostles' reply illuminates for us the connection between sin and faith. True, faith-filled followers of Jesus will be honest with themselves about their sin, their propensity to sin, the danger of leading others into sin, the need to be rebuked when in sin, the need to rebuke when others when they sin, the need to repent and be forgiven of sin, and of course, the need to forgive those who sin against them. One of the things that is incredibly striking about Jesus' teaching is its immediate relevance to our everyday lives here. He tells his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Uh, my guess is, is that those temptations have come to each and every one of us here this morning already. Temptations to sin are sure to come because we are sinners and we live in a world that is inhabited by other sinners who are near us. We live in a world that has been adversely affected by the fall of man into sin, disease, decay, and death have all entered into this world as a consequence of man's sin. And these realities frustrate us in thousands of ways every day. In verse 1, Jesus tells us bluntly what so many in our world want to deny. Many in our world wish to deny that sin exists. Because if you admit that sin exists, you must admit that God exists. He exists and He has a standard and sin is either a violation of that standard or a failure to live up to that standard. 
Friends, deep down we all know that sin exists. We've all seen it in our hearts. We've seen it in the hostility that we felt toward others. Maybe that driver on the road who cuts you off, maybe there's a little bit of, of rage that wells up in your heart, anger. We've seen it when we've thought about those who are not our spouse in ways that are inappropriate. Uh, we've seen it when we judge others quietly in our hearts, when we think that we are better than them. We all know that we have sinned. And if you don't believe you have sinned, then you're lying to yourself, which is, by the way, a sin. Be honest. You're a sinner. I am a sinner. We are all sinners. We have all rebelled against the God who made us. We have all broken His good commands. We have all endeavored to live our own way rather than His way. Sin, you see, it surrounds us. And temptations to sin continually come upon us. The Bible speaks truly to our experiences of this life. And that's because the Bible is true. The Bible is true because God is true. Now, being tempted to sin and actually sinning are two different things. It is not a sin to be tempted. Being tempted to sin is being enticed or invited to transgress God's law by some thought, word, or deed. Being tempted to sin may also take the form of being invited to fail to maintain or uphold God's law in thought, word, or deed. So uh, the Bible says, if any, if any man knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, he sins. So these two things, being tempted to sin and actually sinning, are two different things. Actually sinning is failing to conform to God's law or breaking God's law. And Jesus, I think we see here, has quite a robust view of sin and its effects. He recognizes that we can even tempt others to sin. Jesus' instruction here actually assumes relational connections. Temptations can come through others. Did you realize that? You, you can tempt others to sin. Jesus utters a woe uh, over those who do tempt others to sin. This woe is let me warn you, deeply warn you, do not do this. Do not be the cause of another person's stumbling. Do not be the cause of their fall. Do not be the one who entices them or invites them or tempts them to sin, Jesus is saying to us. Parents, do not provoke your children to wrath. Children, do not provoke your brothers or sisters to anger or lying or disobedience. Women, do not invite men to lust after you through immodest dress. Men, do not engage in emotionally intimate conversations with women who are not your wife. Married, unmarried couples, do not tempt one another to sexual sin. Brothers and sisters, do not be the ones who open the door to another brother or sister's drunkenness. And we could keep going. The dangers are all around us. And Jesus tells us that a death of drowning in the depths of the sea is to be preferred. Is to be preferred over causing one of these little ones to sin. 
in the Gospel of Matthew, it's much clearer that these little ones refer to Jesus' disciples. But I think that the same holds true here in Luke's Gospel. The little ones are almost certainly the poor, the lame, the tax collectors, and the sinners who have come to Jesus in faith. The little ones are faith-filled disciples of Jesus. Do you see how much Jesus loves His people? He is concerned even about our temptation. He is urging us not to tempt others to sin. We can do this consciously and perhaps even unconsciously. And that's why Jesus urges us to pay attention to ourselves. Jesus calls us to keep a watch on our life and doctrine for the sake of others. The Apostle Paul said something similar when he wrote, Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. It is important to keep watch on our life and doctrine for the sake of our own souls. But Jesus makes the point here that the souls of others ought to be our concern too. Following Jesus is not just a matter of you individually following Jesus. It is a matter of following Jesus in the company of other brothers and sisters, in the company of the family of God. The Bible knows of no Christian who follows Jesus alone. We need to ask ourselves, is, is what I am doing, is what I am saying, is it a potential pitfall into sin for another brother or sister in Christ? Temptation to sin is going to come for them. But insofar as we are able, we must watch ourselves and seek to avoid being the source of that temptation. Jesus gives another command in verse 3. After telling His disciples to watch themselves and so refrain from inviting and enticing others to sin, Jesus commands us to rebuke the brother or sister who does sin. Let, let me be clear. This is a command from Jesus. What, what does that mean? It means that we are to obey Him here. If we love Him, we will keep His commands. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Well, what does that mean? It means that we pursue him, we pursue our brother or sister. I think Jesus is speaking fairly generally here about his disciples, but using the term brother. We pursue our brother or sister as God has pursued us. We pursue him to persuade him of the pardon that is available in Jesus Christ. We pursue him to persuade him of the pardon that is available in Jesus Christ. And so we urge him to repent, to turn away from his sin and to turn to Jesus. We should not pursue our brother as though we are sinless. After all, if we are really paying attention to ourselves, we will be painfully aware that we are sinners. When we begin to make our way to rebuke our brother because we're being obedient to Jesus' command, when we begin to make our way to rebuke our brother, we should remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. There Jesus told us that before we take the, the speck out of our brother's eye, we are to take the log out of our own eye. You may need to confess your own sin before addressing the sin of your brother. And so our pursuit must be marked by humility. Humility in recognizing that we, we are sinners. We're in need of God's grace and forgiveness. 
when we actually do come to the point of addressing our brother's sin, we need to do so from God's word and show him why it is a sin. This is not just a preference. This is not just a dislike. This is something that has transgressed, violated God's law or some way in which he has failed to live up to God's law. We must show our brother from God's word why it is a sin. Not only this, but we need to remind him of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for our sins and was raised in victory over them so that we might turn from our sins and follow after him. We lovingly, gently, firmly, and clearly call our brother to turn from his sin. We can, and perhaps we even should, offer to practically help our brother to leave this sin behind. This means that we will need to walk with our brother. There's another thing that's important to this pursuit of our brother, and that's this. We should believe that he is our brother. That's what Jesus calls him here. He is, here it's becoming clear that Jesus particularly has in mind relationships within the community of his disciples, the church. And what Jesus says of our brother, as I said, is equally applicable, applicable to our sisters too. As we pursue our brother or sister, we should believe that he or she is filled with the Spirit and that they will respond positively, gratefully, and with repentance. Think about that, how that might change your approach. And think about what it is like to be rebuked too. When you have been rebuked in the past, it, it was humbling, wasn't it? Necessary and humbling. As we rebuke our brother or sister in love, we must remember that it is, it's not our job to humiliate them. We should not humiliate them. Quite the contrary, we want to restore them. We want to encourage them. If there is any part of you that takes delight in the mere thought of rebuking another, another brother or sister in Christ, then you should not do it. If you take delight in rebuking others, I think that you are not the one that the Lord is calling to obey this command. You are the one that the Lord is calling to pay attention to yourself, to humble yourself, to see your own sins, to be humble and repent of them. Obeying the command of Jesus to rebuke another brother or sister in Christ ought to be a command that we obey with a heavy but hope-filled heart. Why? Heavy because our brother or sister has sinned. He, he is ensnared and we want to see him rescued from that trouble. However, we must have hope. In fact, Jesus gives us hope that our brother might indeed repent. He says there, if he repents, forgive him. Now notice here how Jesus is personalizing and particularizing the situation. What Jesus is especially talking about is when your brother or sister sins against you. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, which is to say, if he admits his guilt, that he has sinned against heaven and against you, like that younger son confessed he had done to his father. If your brother repents, if he admits his guilt, that he's sinned against heaven and you, if he is grieved by his sin, and if he endeavors to turn away from it by God's grace, then notice what Jesus says. You must forgive him. Here is a command that I think is hard to obey. Uh, forgiving 
another person is so incredibly hard because sin's offense is so incredibly painful sometimes. It never feels good to be sinned against. Still here Jesus calls us, commands us to forgive. What does it mean to forgive another person? It means that we forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. He is our, our model of how to forgive. Uh, Chris Bronze has written an excellent little book on this subject, B-R-A-U-N-S. Uh, Chris Bronze has written a book on forgiveness. It's called Unpacking Forgiveness. I'd encourage you to, to find a copy uh, and read it for further study. In some, he, he comes up with this definition after biblical study of, of forgiveness. He says, God's forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they're reconciled to Him. Uh, that definition contains five elements which he breaks out and works out uh, in his book, but I'm only going to draw out two that I just want to point out right here briefly now. Forgiveness includes pardon. It includes pardon. In other words, our sins are no longer counted against us. They're not held against us. Forgiveness also includes reconciliation. In other words, when God forgives us, our relationship with Him is restored. And I think the same is true when thinking about forgiveness on a, on a horizontal level, like Jesus is talking about here. When we forgive another person, we commit ourselves to pardoning them. That means we no longer hold their sin against them. We no longer bring it up. We no longer dwell on it. We no longer use it as a weapon in our relationship. It also means that we live in a restored relationship with them. That does not mean that everything will be immediately the same as it was before, but it does mean that we are working to renew trust and fellowship. As hard as this is, Jesus ups the ante in verse 4, doesn't He? If our brother sins against us over and over and over again, Jesus commands us to forgive him over and over and over again. And this just so accurately captures the human experience, doesn't it? Living in a world with sin and sinners, this is our experience. Sadly, we sin over and over and over again. And we are sinned against over and over and over again. But true believers in Jesus forgive and they keep forgiving. We don't hold grudges. We don't pursue vigilante justice and seek to retaliate. We forgive. Is it any wonder then that the apostles said in verse 5, increase our faith? The thought of obeying these commands seemed impossible to them. Does it seem impossible to you? We'll come back to this in a moment for now. What we all need to remember is that Jesus lived what he taught. He kept what he commanded. Remember how Jesus forgave Peter for sinning against him over and over and over again. Hasn't he done that with us? While he hung on the cross, did he not say, Father, forgive them? Only those who truly believe that they have been forgiven by Jesus can forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. Oh yes, we must be honest about our condition as sinners. We must pay attention to ourselves. 
and we must forgive because we have been forgiven true faith forgives and this is true faith's duty true faith's duty is to take care not to tempt others to sin and to forgive those who do sin this is what we turn to consider in our second point true faith does its duty read uh, Luke chapter 17 verses 5 to 10 now Luke chapter 17 verses 5 to 10 the apostles said to the Lord increase our faith and the Lord said to them if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed you could say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would, and it would obey you will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field come at once and recline at table will he not rather say to him prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded so you also when you have done all that you were commanded say we are unworthy servants we have only done what was our duty we, we all know just how difficult it is to be on guard against tempting others to sin but we all know how difficult it is to forgive I mean have you ever thought to yourself I can't forgive him for this. I will never forgive him. I can't get over this. We know the feeling of impossibility when contemplating forgiving someone who has painfully sinned against us. And so we join in with the apostles and exclaim, Lord, increase our faith. We could read this two ways, couldn't we? Uh, this is both a way of saying that there's a problem here. Jesus, what you're asking me to do is impossible. And it is a plea. Right? Jesus, help me to do the impossible. And I think Jesus points us in the right direction with his reply. Jesus picks up on this concept of the size of one's faith. He picks up on the, the plea for an increased, greater, and growing faith and says, actually, actually, this is not impossible for those who have just, just a little bit of faith. Faith uh, the size of a, a teeny, tiny mustard seed. Just, just one little grain. Forgiving others does, does not require great faith on your part, but it does require true, genuine faith. Forgiving others does not require some kind of super Christian capacity. When it comes to forgiving another person, it is not the size of your faith that counts. The littlest amount of faith can do the seemingly impossible, like forgiving your spouse who sinned against you. Like forgiving the, the co-worker who slandered you in front of everyone. Like forgiving your fellow believer who spread gossip about you. Faith in Jesus Christ, even the smallest amount, makes all things possible. Even forgiveness that's when Jesus uses the illustration of casting the mulberry tree into the sea it's a universally recognized among biblical scholars that mulberry trees had these kind of massive root systems underground the idea of uprooting the mulberry tree was therefore impossible it, it couldn't be done also unlikely was actually planting it in the sea I mean would it really grow there I mean how many mulberry trees have you seen planted there right uh, it, it, it's not the size of your faith that counts 
Jesus is using these extravagant word pictures to make plain that it's not the strength or size of your faith that matters. Why is that? Well, I think Sinclair Ferguson put it well when he said, the weakest faith, this is wonderful, the weakest faith gets the same strong Christ as the strongest faith. We do not put our faith in the power of faith. We put our faith in the power of Christ. We are weak, but He is strong. Because He is strong, we can forgive. As one commentator has said, the point is clear. Christians, even apostles, are distinguished not by the quantity of faith, but by the employment of faith. Not by the greatness or smallness of faith, but by acting on faith. Even faith the size of a mustard seed. In fact, it is our duty to act on our faith. To avoid tempting others to sin and to forgive. Suppose, suppose that we are able to exercise our faith in this way. Suppose that we avoid tempting our brother to sin and forgiving our brother. Should we receive a pat on the back from God? By the way, of parable, by the way, of a parable in verses 7 to 10, Jesus says, no, uh, you've actually just done your duty. That's just what it looks like to be my disciple, to be a humble servant, humble, recognizing that you have the capacity to tempt others to sin. And humble, willing to forgive others because you have been forgiven by God. This is a simple parable about the interaction between a master and his servants and what is expected from servants and masters. Jesus asks questions. He asks rhetorical questions to make the point to everyone listening. They would have understood. They would have understood how relationships between masters and servants operated in their day and age. The word that Jesus actually uses for servant there in verse 7 is actually slave. What's in view here is not the, the chattel slavery that took place in the West, in the Western world during the 18th and 19th centuries. So please do not misunderstand Jesus. He is not condoning slavery. Uh, the Bible never condones or commends slavery. Jesus is simply drawing a lesson out from a situation that all of his hearers would have understood. When a master calls his servant in from the field, he will not invite his servant to sit down and eat with him. Instead, he's going to continue to ask him to keep doing his duty to work for him, preparing his dinner, dressing properly, and serving him. Thanks flowing from the master to the servant are not owed. What is owed is the duty of the servant to his master. Now, this does not sit well with our modern sensibilities. But the truth is, is that if Jesus is our master, it is our duty to do what he has commanded. We are to be his humble servants. It is what he made and remade us by his spirit. We do not deserve the privilege of being invited into his house to serve him. And yet in his great grace and mercy, he's called us to serve him. And you know what's interesting? The apostles, those who Jesus said, Lord, increase our faith, they started calling themselves servants or slaves when they wrote to the New Testament churches. So the apostle Peter, he identified himself as a servant, a slave, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. James did it in chapter 1, verse 1 of his letter. John did it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Though Paul wasn't present from this, for this teaching from Jesus, Paul did it actually in multiple letters. 
Jude did it in his letter, the apostles and the early believers happily and wholeheartedly embraced being a servant of the Lord and Master Jesus Christ. How could they do this? Because Jesus himself was a servant. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul tells us that Jesus took the form of a servant, which is the same word uh, here in, in Luke 17, verse, uh, verse 7. Jesus took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus has not only been a faithful servant to God the Father and representative, representative servant to us, but He is also the one who forgives us of our sin. So you see, what Jesus is actually calling us to do here is to imitate Him. Jesus kept what He commanded. He lived what He taught. In view of all that Jesus has done for us, He's calling us to represent His forgiving love through forgiving those who have sinned against us. This is what true faith in action looks like. This is what it looks like for faith to do its duty. Our duty as disciples is not to, to look for thanks, but to look for ways to faithfully represent Christ. To put it slightly differently, we ought not to look for thanks, but to look to give thanks to our Master. Should we not give thanks to Jesus for the forgiveness and salvation that He has secured for us. In fact, the next thing that happens in Luke's Gospel reminds us of why we place our faith in Jesus and forgive like Him. We place our faith in Jesus and forgive like Him because in His great mercy He has healed filthy and sin-filled lepers like us. So, so we learn in Luke chapter 17 verses 11 to 19 that true faith gives thanks. This is our third and final point. True faith gives thanks. Uh, read Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. In verse 11 here, you'll see there, we're reminded that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, fulfilling his mission of service to God the Father for the salvation of sinners like you and me. Luke is sure to note Jesus' location, not only for accuracy, but also to prepare us for what is about to happen. Jesus is about to be thanked and praised by an extreme outsider, by a healed Samaritan leper. Jesus was a Jew by birth, and there were abiding hostilities between Jews and Samaritans. Among other things, they, they disagreed over where 
true worship of God took place. Except one of these ten lepers, the Samaritan one of all, is going to end up worshiping at the right place, at the feet of Jesus. We need to understand a few things about what is, is going on here. Luke tells us that these lepers, they, they, they stood at a distance, they cried out. In fact, by law, they, they had to stand at a distance. They had to keep their distance. They were ceremonially unclean and they weren't supposed to come into contact with others and so make others unclean by their disease. If anyone got too close to the leper, the leper was obligated to place his hand over his mouth and to shout out, to cry out, unclean, unclean. Their uncleanness separated them from God, from their families, and from their communities of faith. To be unclean in this respect was a great burden. Sometimes these skin diseases would never go away. So sometimes these men and women were isolated from the worship of God for most of their lives. And in some cases, the whole of their lives. I mean, can you imagine having to part from your family or for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Never being allowed to come back here. Being unclean in this regard is cause for great mourning and shame. And these lepers, they, they had to shame themselves by shouting out that they were unclean. In distress, the, the lepers, they, they lift up their voices to Jesus. They cry aloud to Jesus. They beg Jesus. They plead with Jesus to have mercy upon them. Somehow, somehow they knew that He had the power to heal. Perhaps they heard the story from earlier in Luke's Gospel, from Luke chapter 5, where Jesus actually, He actually touched a leper and healed him, made him clean. These lepers, they got Jesus' attention. Jesus saw them. You see that in verse 14. Uh, this afternoon, if, if you were to go and read through Luke's Gospel, uh, and you were to, to look for this phrase, when Jesus saw them, or when Jesus sees those who are oppressed by sickness and disease, here's what you'd find. He heals them. Jesus was full of compassion for those who suffered. Our world is filled with all kinds of sickness. And it's my prayer that our hearts would always be filled with compassion when we come across those who suffer. Sin has brought great suffering into our world. And every human person who suffers bears the image of God. They reflect our Lord and are immensely valuable to Him. Do not ever grow callous to damage and destruction that disobedience has ushered into the world. We must always live like our Lord, who displayed compassion toward those who suffered. We learn here in verse 14 that Jesus commands the lepers to go and show themselves to the priest. Jesus, he almost certainly has in view uh, obedience to the laws found in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, which is commonly called the manual of purity in the book of Leviticus. What we need to realize about those Old Testament laws is that though they dealt with physical realities, tangible categories of what was clean and unclean, they pointed to spiritual realities. There was and is a difference between God and man. God is perfectly holy or clean, and man is neither holy nor clean. That is why the manual of purity in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, contains God's declaration, Be holy. 
for I am holy. The law's constant declaration of, of this is unclean and that is unclean, you are unclean, was not meant to drive the people of Israel to despair. It was meant to drive them to God. Go to God and be made clean. That's what the book of Leviticus called lepers to do. And that's exactly what these lepers did. They came to God. They came to Jesus for their cleansing. God is the only one who can cleanse sinners and lepers. And that is who Jesus is. He is God. These ten lepers, they start off on their journey with leprosy on their bodies, but then miraculously, as they went, they were cleansed. As God in the flesh, Jesus has the power to overturn disease. One of them uh, doesn't make it to the priest. He turned back. In verse 14, Jesus saw, but in verse 15, the leper saw. You see that? Those parallels there? And, and what, what did the leper see? He saw that he was healed. He saw that God had done it, and he saw that Jesus was God. He falls at Jesus' feet in worship and thanks. As a Jew, Jesus would know that the first and the second commandments require worship to go to Yahweh, to God and to God alone. Does Jesus rebuke this man for violating the first and the second commandments? Does He rebuke him for sinning? Does Jesus tell him, you, you must stop doing that? No. Jesus does not rebuke this man because he is not sinning. When he falls at Jesus' feet and worships Him, He is worshiping the one true God. He is doing the very thing that He was made to do. This Samaritan, the one who was formerly outside, not merely outside the village because of his leprosy, but outside the kingdom of God because of his sin, has been brought in. He has been brought into the kingdom of God. And what is the difference between this man who comes and gives thanks to Jesus and the other nine? Well, Jesus tells us there in verse 19 when He says, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, maybe you wonder, but weren't the other nine made well too? After all, didn't verse 14 tell us that they were all cleansed? Yes, they were all cleansed. But were they made well? This man was cleansed. But unlike the others, he was made well. That word well uh, in the original language of the Greek is sozo, which along with the meaning to be made whole, also means to deliver, or to save. So in other words, what Jesus is saying to this man is get up and go your way. Your faith in me has saved you. This healing was about more than the healing of this man's body. It was also about the healing needed in this man's heart. How is it that faith in Jesus saves us? Faith is just another word for trust or dependence. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are entrusting our whole selves to Him. We're relying upon, we're leaning upon Him, we're depending upon Him. Faith is knowing that Jesus is able to save. Faith is believing that Jesus is able to save. Faith is trusting that Jesus is able to save. Faith is abandoning any hope, any trust, 
any dependence upon ourselves or our works or what we can do. And it's abandoning ourselves to our only hope, Jesus Christ. As John Murray has so wonderfully said, Jesus is the absorbing preoccupation of faith because there is no other hope of salvation apart from Him. This man's faith in Jesus was revealed in his thanks to Jesus. Just as he loudly lifted up his voice with the lepers to cry aloud to Jesus for mercy, verse 13, you see that there? He also loudly lifted up his voice to thank and praise Jesus, verse 15. Jesus is mighty to save. It is not the strength of our faith that saves, but the strength of our Savior. He is the one who heals our hearts. Friend, what about you? Have you cried out to Jesus for mercy, for forgiveness? Do you believe that Jesus has the authority, power, and love to forgive sins and to make you clean? He does. I wonder if you feel the force and power of these verses. I wonder if you recognize that you are sick with sin. I wonder if you recognize that you're a spiritual leper, mired in sin. We cannot save ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. You can't make yourself clean before God. Do you recognize that you are a spiritual leper? Apart from Jesus, this is the condition of every man, woman, and child. We have all sinned. And we really don't have to look very hard to see sin in our lives. We have all sinned. Rather than living God's way, we have lived our own way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Our sin makes us unclean before God. We are spiritual lepers. And if we are to be received into God's presence in heaven and accepted as righteous in God's sight... If we are to be made well and saved, then atonement needs to be made for our sins. And we need to be cleansed. Without being made clean, our sins and our sins being forgiven by Jesus, we would be forever cut off from God's presence. We would be forever shut out of His presence. Just like these lepers were shut out of cities and their communities. Only this is infinitely worse. Because it is an eternal banishment from God's benevolence in order that we might face God's wrath in hell. The good news is that Jesus is the Lord who forgives. He came to make us clean. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He never sinned. He was never made unclean. He always made the unclean clean. He did what we can't do. He did what we needed Him to do. At the end of this road to Jerusalem, He gave up His life on the cross for sinners like us. He stood in our place and bore the punishment that was due to our sins if we would but turn from our sins and believe that His blood shed on the cross cleanses us from all of our transgressions. And three days after His death, God raised Him from the dead, proving to us all that His blood sacrifice on behalf of of sinners was acceptable in God's sight. This is the wonderful promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. John tells us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Friend, if you are to be saved by Christ, you need to say like that leper, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. And I promise you this, if you come to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith with that request, His answer will be, get up, get up and go your way. Your faith in me has saved you. So friend, believe. Believe that Jesus lived for you and died for you and that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to be cleansed and forgiven by Jesus, please know that I'd love to talk with you about that after the service. But please speak with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important than this good news, that we can be forgiven and cleansed by Jesus Christ. But we should conclude. Friends, brothers and sisters of Christ, let us learn from the healed, cleansed, and saved leper. The one who praised Jesus and gave thanks to Him. Only, only when we realize just how wretched our sinful state is, will we be encouraged to be on guard against leading others to rebel against Jesus. Only when we realize just how much we have been forgiven and healed, will we be able to forgive only when we remember the strength of our Savior will we be strengthened to and even take delight, I think, in the duty of forgiving like Him and serving like Him. Only when we remember how gracious, loving, and kind our Master is will we give ourselves in humble service to Him. Let's pray together.